Amen. If you would, if you've got your Bibles, whether uh, physical Bible or electronic, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew? Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28 is where we will find ourselves today. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28. How many of you in here would raise your hand and uh, would admit in front of a room full of people that you are a history buff? You like all things history. Now, those of you who raised your hand, I'm going to call all of you to the front at this. No, I was just joking. <laughs> you guys got scared. I saw the looks on your face like, wait, what? So I love to read, as many of you who uh, know me well know that I love to read, and one of the things that I like to read about is that of history. And uh, at, at times, I would joke around with my wife or even our children, and I would, tell, uh, I would tell them that I'm a history nerd, just like I am a science nerd. And one of the wars of history that has intrigued me the most in my entire life, and really one of the war figures that has intrigued me the most has always been the Union's General-in-Chief, George McClellan. How many of you have heard that name before? Wow, the rest of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm scared because you don't know our country's history. The Union's General-in-Chief, George McClellan, worked and served under President Lincoln. And on paper, President Lincoln could not have hoped for a better general to lead the Union Army during the Civil War. They called General McClellan the young Napoleon because he possessed one of the greatest strategic minds of any general in U.S. history. He was the youngest member to ever have been accepted into the U.S. military at the age of 15. I'm pretty sure that he was homeschooled and that's why he... Uh, but he graduated second in his class, and the only reason that he missed the top spot was because he had subpar sketching skills. He could not draw well. George McClellan became an excellent recruiter, and in the first 16 weeks in the military, he increased the army's size by 300%, by 300% in, in four months' time. Troops loved him. Under his leadership, they started to believe that they could actually win the war. So no one was surprised when Lincoln appointed George McClellan as the general-in-chief. He had experience. He had talent. He had everything. And now he had a powerhouse army that was outnumbering the enemy more than three to one. But there was just one problem with George McClellan. He was a man that would not fight. Now you're saying, how can he be a general and not fight? For weeks, George McClellan readied his position. He organized. He strategized. And General Lee's armies lay dangerously exposed just a few miles from the Union Army. And at President Lincoln's urge, McClellan put his numerical and tactical advantages to use and he could crush the rebellion with one swift attack, but McClellan would not fight. He understood the strategy. He had all of the odds, but he could not bring the men to fight. 
If a military man is unwilling to fight, then what good are all of his other talents? What good are they? And so after an excruciating year of inactivity, President Lincoln removed the greatest military mind in history. And he was replaced by a man who had half of his tactical talent, but a man who would have picked a fight with anybody. Does anybody know who that man was? Someone said it, I heard it. It was Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant, the greatest asset church of a military man is his ability to fight. And without that, all other assets are ultimately useless. Now you may be thinking this morning, why on earth is our pastor giving us a history lesson to start church? Well, I share that because I want to talk to you this morning about something that as Christians and as a church that we have to do well. Something which without it, everything else that we do is useless. And that one thing is making disciples. That one thing is making disciples. No matter how good we are at everything else, if we don't do disciple making well, then we have failed as followers of God. We can raise all the money in the world to upgrade this building as, as we have seen done over the last several months. We could write the greatest songs as a worship team standing on this platform. We could have the best and the biggest children's ministry and youth ministry out of any other church here in this community. I can preach the greatest sermons I can write great books that I'm in the process of doing right now. But if we do not make disciples, we have failed. And so this morning, we have to discover our role in the mission of God. We have to discover it. And discovering that role is really found by looking at three things. And we're not going to linger on these three things, but they're going to hit the screen for you. The first is your secular or vocational ability. God did not make everyone sitting in this room or everybody online to, to be a part of vocational ministry like I have been for the last several years. And he gave each one of you, though, gifts in business or in medicine or as mothers and fathers. And he uses you to bless the world through whatever your vocation is. So your, your vocational ability. The second is your spiritual gifts. God gives each believer spiritual gifts by which he works through you to impact the world around you. And I don't have time to unpack what those are. But the third one is then the Great Commission, what we found right here in our text today in Matthew chapter 28. And I want to focus primarily on the Great Commission this morning because that commission is to make disciples. Because regardless of your vocation and regardless of your spiritual gifts, the Great Commission has been given to each and every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you would, look with me at Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verse number 19. And he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning, Lord, and I ask right now that you um, would penetrate deep within our hearts this morning. That we would not tune you out because this is a familiar, almost overly familiar portion of Scripture. That Holy Spirit, you would give us something fresh and new. That you would um, restore any negative thoughts that we may have about discipleship in ways that maybe the church at large has failed. And Lord, show us this morning what you would have us to do uh, through this portion of Scripture. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So what I would like to do this morning is to spend a few minutes showing you that discipleship is at the very core of the Great Commission, both for us as a church, but also for you as individuals. And then secondly, I want to show you tangibly how you can disciple other people. I was telling the prayer team this morning that oftentimes discipleship is spoken about in church, and they tell you all about what discipleship is, and they point to scripture where discipleship is displayed, but then they don't tell you how to tangibly do that in your life. You walk away ill-equipped, and you fail because you were not successfully or adequately prepared to be successful in making disciples. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is that making disciples is the central element of the mission of every believer. I want to go back and I want to read to you verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, in the original writings of this text, the words go... The word baptize and the word teach, they all derive their force from the one controlling verb phrase, make disciples. Which means that those things, the going and the baptizing and the teaching are only good in so far as they contribute to making disciples. There was a man, uh, an author, who penned probably one of the greatest discipleship making books in history, and his name was Robert Coleman. And he wrote a book, a classic book in 1962 called The Master's Plan of Evangelism. Now, we all know the definition of a classic book, right? It's a book that a lot of people have probably heard of, but they've never read. I read this book just recently from 1962, and what's going to come to the screen here in just a moment is a portion from that book, a, a small paragraph. And I want you to follow along with me. Because Robert Coleman says this. He says, The Great Commission is not merely to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel, nor to baptize a lot of converts into the name of a triune God, nor to teach them the precepts of Christ, but to make disciples, to build men like themselves who were so constrained by the commission of Christ that they not only followed Jesus themselves, but they led others to follow him too. And so church, the criteria which any church should measure its success is not how many new names were in the guest role for that week or how big our budget is, or how much it's increased from the previous years, but rather how many Christians are actively winning souls and training others to win the multitudes. That's what we should be looking at. 
Most churches judge their success by how many people attend each and every service or how big the budget is. How much money can we spend in the next 12 months or how many baptisms your church has had. But heaven does not celebrate any of those numbers. That's the stark reality for us this morning. Heaven does not celebrate any of those numbers. It celebrates disciples. It celebrates disciples. Did you know that the word Christian only appears in the Bible three times? Yet the word disciple appears 281 times in the New Testament alone. Which means that it is foolish to only celebrate that which heaven does not celebrate. Now, What it means to become a Christian is to trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and that's conversion. But a true conversion leads to lifelong discipleship, which means that you go on pursuing Jesus for the rest of your life, and you do everything that he has commanded you to do. That's what a disciple is. And for those of you who have been in this church any length of time, who know me well, I'm not against counting numbers. In fact, I'm a numbers guy. I look at statistics all the time for all sorts of things. I just want to make sure, though, as a church, that we're focusing on the right ones. That our mind is set. That that the priority of disciple-making is not just something for us as a church, but that it's something for each one of you to think about for your individual selves also. Because every follower of Jesus Christ has been given the responsibility to make disciples. Every single one of us. And sometimes people read the Great Commission, these these two verses here in the entirety of the Bible, over 80,000 verses, and we look at these two verses and we think the Great Commission is a charge that was just given to the apostles or what the church leaders do only. But think about it. When Jesus commanded the disciples to teach others all the things that he had commanded, I'm pretty sure that the command to make disciples would have been included, wouldn't it? I'm almost certain that Jesus did not preface outside of here after they penned these two verses and saying, hey, um, since you guys are the 12, the first 12 to follow me, you guys are the only ones that have to follow that. Jesus did not say, teach them all that I have commanded except for the command to make disciples. Only give that people to those who are ordained for ministry. That's that's not what Jesus said. Everyone who follows Jesus is to be a disciple maker. And to add to that, I want you to check out this verse on the screen that Jesus himself said in John 15. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so church, how is God glorified in your life? How is he glorified? I want to hang on that verse for just a moment. It's right there on the screen. How is he glorified? That you would bear much fruit. That you would bear much, not a little fruit, but much fruit. In doing so, when you bear much fruit, it proves that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you are a follower, which, be, which means that you are not bearing fruit. You ha- and if you are not bearing fruit this morning, 
If you are here today and you say, I, I know that I have been saved, but you are not bearing fruit, then it has to raise the question whether you are a disciple or not. Things that are alive, they grow, and things that are potent, they multiply. And so that's the question that each one of us has to ask ourselves and hear this morning. Are you bearing fruit? Are you making disciples? Can you point to people in our church today that you have brought into the kingdom or that you are bringing up into the maturity of Jesus Christ? Can you point to people right here, right now? Because God's plan for how he would grow his church was not giving this guy a great preaching gift or having the church start a whole bunch of new ministries and programs. His plan was for each individual believer to make disciples of those around them. The people in their circles of influence. The same man that we, we read a portion of his book, Robert Coleman, he said, when will the church learn that lesson? When will they learn? Because church preaching to the masses, although it is necessary, it will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can any occasional prayer meeting and training class for Christian workers do the job. Men and women are God's method. Men and women, they are God's method. And God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. You, you're God's method. You are God's method. You are God's method. You online, you're God's method for discipleship. And so you may be asking yourself, why on earth is our pastor talking to us a week before Passion Week? When we should be reading about the stories of Jesus and Jesus' life leading up to his returning to Jerusalem and the crucifixion and resurrection. So why, why is our pastor talking to us about discipleship? Yeah. <laughs> My wife and I have been in ministry for a long time, almost as long as we have been together as a couple. And we know that people move. They move to different states. They move to different cities. We know that people leave churches for other churches. And when people leave, the mission has not changed. It's still the same. Make disciples. Go and make disciples does not change. But oftentimes I have seen in ministry that people leave and they don't know what to do in order to fulfill that mission. Because not everyone in this room is going to be called to plant a church. Not everyone in this room is going to be called to go on foreign soil. And so people leave. They walk away every single Sunday and there are those that are lost in the mess of life and they don't follow through with the clear commands of Scripture. And while I am here pastoring, I want to make sure, I want to make very sure that you know what the mission is and how to accomplish it. 
Because if not, then I have failed you as your pastor. And I want to spend every waking moment moving forward. Why? Because every day, every day, hundreds of people die. And every day, we come in contact with people who are bound and destined for hell because they don't know Jesus Christ. Think of all the opportunity that you have to share the gospel with somebody. Let me, let me give you a, an illustration that will hopefully help you. Have you ever had a day where you felt like you got slammed with stuff to do from the moment that you opened your eyes? Parents, right? Your kids are screaming in your ear and it's 6 o'clock in the morning. That happens in our house all the time, right? Your kids are yelling. The dogs just made a mess in the living room. Your boss is calling you. You have a financial issue with the cable company because they just overcharged you $200 and you're busy from the time you woke up and until your head hits the pillow at night. Anybody resonate with that? Right? You got to the end of your day dead dog tired and you were so busy, but you can't name a single item that you did that day. Nothing on your to-do list got taken care of. Anybody understand that? Right? Well, my fear as a pastor is that some of you are going to be just like that with your entire life. That you're going to go your whole life being busy and come to the very end and tired, realizing that you never did the one thing that Jesus commanded you to do. In fact, church, I want to give you a radical thought this morning. For you gold star students who are note takers, that's going to come to the screen and it's this, God has given each one of you your vocation. Whatever that may be, in part as a platform or a network of relationships through which you can make disciples. And if you're in here and you're like, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Or I'm retired. What am I supposed to do? Well, guess what? If you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, your, your first priority in discipleship making is your children. It doesn't matter if they're four years old or they're 40. Your first priority in disciple making is your children. It's not up to the pastor. It's not up to the, no, it's up to you as a parent to disciple your kid. And if you're retired, you're like, I'm retired. Well, what about me? Well, guess what? If you attend church here, I guarantee there's at least a dozen or more people right here in this congregation that are looking for someone to do life with to walk alongside. And so if you're struggling finding somebody to disciple, come and talk to me after the service. I'll give you a whole list of names. Right now, I'll give you a whole list of names because in saying all of that, I'm not saying that your work, for those of you who are like, well, I have to work because I need the money. Well, listen, I'm not saying that your work is not a good end in itself. 
Because you should be blessing others through your work. And of course, when I say that, I'm not talking about doing anything inappropriate, like using your position as a school teacher to preach to your children all day. Or being a doctor or a nurse who attends to sick patients by their bedside as they're dying and whispering in their ear, turn or burn! I'm not talking about the dentist or the dental hygienist working on somebody's cavities and while their mouth is completely open and they can't respond, telling them that they have cavities of their soul without Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that your profession naturally puts you in contact with people that are more likely to listen to you than they are to me. And that's why in the book of Acts, we see that the gospel spread faster through the hands of ordinary people than it did through the apostles. In the book of Acts, the apostles rarely get anywhere first. The normal, everyday Christians carried the gospel into new places. And those of you who do not feel called to be full-time Christian workers, which is 99% of you sitting in this room, you play a more strategic role in the worldwide spread of the gospel than those of us who are in vocational ministry. You are the tip of the spear. You were God's plan A. And so here's my question. Have you ever seriously considered that maybe God gave you your skill not just as a tool for making money, but as a platform to spread the gospel? And then my next question to follow that up is, are you doing that? Are you actually doing it? And so, with the remainder of the time that we have this morning, I want to begin to shift our focus. And I want to start discussing the second aspect here this morning, and that is, like, how, how do I become a disciple maker? What does that even look like tangibly in my life? Now, like, where and how should that happen? All of the talk of discipleship in churches, especially in my own life, comes from a fresh concern about how to bring people to Christ and how to grow them up into being what they ought to be as disciples. And so I want to give you six things on how that happens. Six ways that each one of you can fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ. And they're going to come to the screen. Some will linger and others we won't. But the first thing that you need to do in order to fulfill the mission is to own the assignment. Own the assignment. Because probably the biggest thing that each one of us has to do is acknowledge that this is exactly what God has told me and commanded me to do, to make disciples. Not just your neighbor or your spouse, not just your kid or your pastor or your church leader, but each one of you. In fact, if you were to go through the New Testament, and I don't have time to talk through every single verse that points out some element or aspect of discipleship, because if we did, we would be here all day. Paul wrote 
to a young man by the name of Titus. And he said to teach the church this phrase, Titus 2, for older women are to train younger women. Older women. And so you may be sitting in here and you're like, well, I'm not an old woman, so I'm exempt. <gasps> Wrong. Wrong. If you are older than somebody else, you can teach somebody else something. Titus said, train Train the younger women. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2. Paul trained Timothy to train others to train others. Ephesians 6, 4. If you're a dad in here, I want you to look up here. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, train your children. Fathers. Matthew 28, 20. Teach the nations everything that Jesus commanded. Hebrews 3. All Christians are to exhort each other every day, as long as it's called today, in order to avoid sin and stir up in each other love and good works. 1 Peter 4.10, Christian, you are to use your gift to serve others. That list can go on and on and on. And so I want to challenge you right now. I want you to write it down. I want you to write down, I am to be a disciple maker. Put it in your Bible. Write it in your notes. Type it on your phone if you're using the Bible on your cell phone. I am to be a disciple maker. And as you're writing that, that might overwhelm you this morning. I mean, all for honesty in church. How many of you would raise your hand and say being a disciple maker is overwhelming? All six of you, great. It might be overwhelming to you this morning, but when you own being a disciple maker, you can start asking for God to help you in getting it done. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It is him, it is Jesus that does the making inside of us. And if you will accept the assignment, if you'll take ownership of it, he will make you effective in doing so. Because Christian in here this morning, unfruitfulness is not the problem. Being bothered about unfruitfulness is the problem. And so you and I should not hide behind faithfulness. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, it is, the true, it is true that a fisherman cannot catch fish, but no true fisherman is okay with that. And he goes on to say that if I were bringing souls to Jesus, if I were not bringing souls to Jesus, I'd be crying out to him every single night. And so we have to take ownership of the assignment. The second one is that we must understand the method. Life on life. Jesus' method in the Bible was life on life, whether he was addressing the multitude that pressed upon him, or whether he was arguing with the Pharisee or the Sadducee who sought to ensnare him, or he was speaking to the lonely beggar along the road, the disciples were always close at hand to observe and to listen to how Jesus handled every situation. And through the manner of personal demonstration, 
every aspect of Jesus' personal discipline of life was entrusted to the disciples. And so if you're a note taker in here, I want you to not miss this. One living sermon is worth a is one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. One living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. Before we moved here two years ago, I worked on staff at a church for nearly ten years. There were three men that I served alongside of in the capacity and role of pastor. Our lead pastor was um, Todd Adams. And our executive pastor was Micah Warren. And my closest and dearest friend and mentor was Chad Houghton. Or is Chad Houghton. And I served alongside of those men for 10 years in multiple capacities. But those three men taught and shared more with me through listening to them pray than any sermon that they preached in 10 years that I served alongside of them. Listening to those men seek and cry out to God about the things that were going on in their lives and in their marriages and with the people they were discipling and with the church and the issues that arise in all ministries. I learned and, and taught and was taught so much more by just listening to them pray than anything they ever said in a sermon to our entire church body. So for you and I, we have to realize that 60% of discipleship, life on life, it's informal. It's informal. It's sitting across from another person, drinking a cup of coffee, talking, of, for those of you who drink coffee. And what that means is that for many of you, you just need to open up your life and live with people. You just need to open up your life. Invite others into ministry with you. Don't do it alone. I, I have shared with you um, as a church body that um, I'm a really skeptical individual. Um, when people say that they want to get to know me, immediately red flags go up, and I'm like, why? Why do you want to get to know me? And I've had, I've had a lot of opportunities in the last several years that my family and I have had to walk through a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of forgiveness in this life. When I first got here as a pastor... Believe me, I loved fellowship. I loved being with people and around people. And some things happened and occurred in our lives which really kind of put this huge wall. And people here in the church would be like, hey, we want to have you over for dinner. And I'm like, ixnay on the I'm not going to eat your food day. I don't, want to, I, don't, I don't want to be around people because I'm hurt. And, I, and I, I don't want to open myself up to people because 
I, I don't want more people to hurt me on top of the hurt that I've already endured from church people. But several weeks ago, I guess a few months back, we were walking through a series and the Lord was really doing a number on my heart about unforgiveness. And I had to begin to walk through and navigate through the dangerous waters of forgiving people who I knew would probably hurt me again. And as I began to navigate that with my wife, as we had to teach our children what it means to forgive those who have hurt and damaged things in your life, God began to restore my, my desire for fellowship. I love to be with people of like mind and heart, don't you? I love the main support group of people that I have and the time that I get to spend with them. But this life is so short. This life is so short and our, our meeting with the Lord face to face is becoming so imminent and so much more real. Our desire in this life should be made to make a hundred percent return on God's investment of grace that has been given to each one of us. And the fact in my life is so strong anymore that I'm not just interested in any kind of fellowship that does not help people explode with more love and explode with more compassion and more joy and more holiness and more zeal for God and more boldness in your witness and, and more power in ministry and more vision for missions. And I don't believe that this disenchantment of mine with self-contained, unfruitful, ineffective fellowship is just a personal quirk because you, you who know me know that I'm a quirky guy. But God is opening up something in my heart and mind and I believe it's an echo of the explosive fellowship that we hear and read about in the New Testament. I want every person in this church to know the sweet taste of camaraderie. I want every person in this church to know that they have a place to belong and a family here. And that there's unity of, of spirit and oneness of mind that is the very heart of the New Testament. Christian fellowship, is, it should be so precious and it should be indispensable in this life, especially now in the midst of the brokenness in our culture. But I want every single thing that we do, whether we're studying scripture or reading a book together, or, or focusing on a singles issue, or, or a marriage issue, or supporting a missionary, or, or targeting our city with prayer, praying for children and teenagers. Whatever the, the focus is, I pray that everything will, that happens will be explosive. That it will produce explosives. That it would ignite the fuse 
of the explosives or, or that we would toss the explosive. And I hope that the mindset is to serve an explosion of love and compassion and truth and joy and worship and power and ministry to the people around us. And the reason that I feel warranted this morning by God to share this and express this so strongly is because I see in the Bible that this is the kind of fellowship that carried the Christian movement from 120 disciples in the upper room beyond the day of Pentecost to nearly 5,000 Christians in a very small period of time. And that mentality planted the movement all over the known world in just a few short decades. Planted that mentality, a movement. But and there's there's a really really big but. That mentality comes with a cost. That mentality comes with a cost because such close and constant association with other people meant that Jesus had no time to call his own. None. And one of the things that we as Americans love is our time. There's a huge movement here in our culture. It's the hashtag me, me time. Hashtag self-care. Man, I don't have time to chase that rabbit trail. We like to go into our garages and shut the door and blare our music and we like to escape to our bedrooms and turn on our TVs or, or go into our shops and, and mess with our guns. We like to go out and go shopping or get our nails done or get our hair done, right? You know somebody like that? I have to have my me time. Well, guess what? Me time was not a thing that was taught in the Bible. Self-care was not something that Jesus said, this is how you live. Soul care was, but not self-care. And soul care is so different than self-care. Self-care says, let me go get my nails done and let me go party with the boys. No, soul care says, let me spend alone time with Jesus. Let me be refilled so that I can help somebody else. So I'm not pouring from an empty cup. Because you and I need to open up our life and begin to share it with other people. One of the things that we don't like to talk about in churches is, is the evangelistic power of hospitality. Like have people over for dinner. I mean, the hospitality has led to some of the best conversations in our home where we were eating soup, where we were eating slices of bread, where we were eating a piece of pie. Some of the best and even some of the worst conversations that we've had to walk into. They, help, they happened at meals at our home. And so gut check this morning, church. Do you have three people in your phone list on your cell phone that are non-believing people that you could text or call the moment that you step outside of these doors and say, hey, I want to meet with you this week? Do you? Because Jesus' method for reaching others was not preaching to the masses. And it wasn't some creative program. It was men and women sharing lives. And so we have to understand the method. 
life on life. Next, you have to be ready with a plan. Start reading your Bible, church, consistently. Start praying consistently. Get plugged in and serving at church. Because guess what? You will meet other people who have the same interests that you do when you're serving. And there are plenty of ways to get plugged in. Our children's ministry, our youth, and listen, don't sign up to work in children's ministry if you'll duct tape kids to the wall because we don't want that. Our youth ministry, our tech ministry upstairs in the booth, man, it's not hard to press the space bar on that computer and let the slides go. It's not hard at all. Come on Wednesday night to Bible study as we dive deeper into the Word of God. Start connecting with people that you see right here on Sundays. Be ready with a plan. The next is make the invitation. I want you to invite somebody into that process. And you say, how do I do that? Well, why don't you learn to share your story? And then ask that person, do you want to learn more about Jesus and and what he's done and what he can do for you? Invite them to read the Bible. Invite them to church. I mean, a huge one because of how we structure our services. You never know what God is going to do until you extend an invitation to somebody. When we lived in Florida, I was constantly traveling throughout the year to go to to pastoral conferences and and be invested in by pastors who had a lot more wisdom and knowledge than I. And there, there are a lot of times in which I had to travel via plane. And I'm not... Uh, the guy who loves to get on planes. Uh, There was a time in my life where I struggled severely uh, with claustrophobia and knowing that I couldn't just open the door and step out if I needed to. And so I would struggle getting on on these airplanes. And there were five specific times that I rode on airplanes that I remember before I got on talking to my wife and then praying that God would give me an opportunity to speak to somebody to take the focus off of myself and place it back on him. Five different times I had the opportunity to present the gospel and speak with five different people about God. The first four, total crash and burn. Total crash and burn. Two of those four, when I started talking to them about God, they're like, oh, okay, and they put their, head, their earbuds in. Two of them. I was like, well, this is awkward because now I have to sit next to you on the plane for two and a half hours. The other two, argumentative, God's not real, I'm an atheist, which makes no sense because you, never mind. I don't have time to unpack that either. Um, and so... The first four opportunities I have are total crash and burn, but I get to the fifth opportunity, and I'm on my way home from a pastoral conference in Lafayette, Indiana. And the fifth opportunity, I began to share the gospel with with this man. He was probably middle-aged, somewhere in his 50s. And he turns to me and he says, can I just tell you all of the things that God has done in my life and how I've been waiting for an opportunity to sit next to somebody for a long time that I don't know and just speak about Jesus. The guy already knew Jesus. He already had a relationship with him. I wasn't going to try to see if the Holy Spirit would save him twice. To get to the one, I had to go through the four. To get to the one. 
And this is exactly what I believe, and I will never stray from it because I believe that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the real evangelist. He is at work in the world around us, Jesus said. And so you and I just need to uncover it a little bit. And we need to pray a lot about it. I mean, every day. Why do you think I always end our services by asking God to give us divine encounters with people this week? Pray every day. You know, it's significant to me in the Bible that before Jesus chose the 12 disciples, Luke records that he spent the entire night in prayer prior to calling even the first disciple in Luke chapter 6. And then we're going to get to the sticky wicket. The next thing I want us to see is that we need to stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. I'm going to share with you some of the excuses that we've heard in ministry about those who don't make disciples. I don't know what to say is one of the top ones that we hear from people. Well, guess what? I just gave you a whole bunch of things to talk about. What about, well, I witness with my life. That's my favorite Christian phrase. I witness with my life. Well, that's great. What does that even mean? I mean, honestly, because the gospel is not an inspiring demonstration about what an awesome person you are. It's news about what Jesus has done for you and in you and through you because you were so messed up that he had to die for you. The gospel is not be a kind person like I am, but Jesus saved me when I couldn't save myself. And that requires words. Christians hide behind the phrase, talking to other people makes me feel so weird and uncomfortable. Well, yeah, of course it does. Of course it does. Someone told me one time that evangelism was, was defined as two people talking to, other, to each other, both feeling awkward the entire time. That was one of the first phrases I heard in one of the evangelism classes that I took. But here's the thing, the gospel message is important enough. And so let me ask you a question. Is Jesus important enough for you to feel a little weird and uncomfortable? Is he important enough to you for you to feel a little weird and uncomfortable? What about the phrase, I don't have the time? Anybody ever used that, thought it, or, or said it before? I have empathy for the phrase, I don't have time. Because we're busy people. I'm busy. One of, one of my mentors, <laughs> my wife and I sit down on a monthly basis and we look over our calendar. We have a, a work calendar and we have a family calendar. And they're intermingled so that when things come to that calendar, we both are able to see them. And I remember at the end of our, our tenure in Florida, we were looking at our calendar and we had seven straight months of something every single day. Sometimes multiple things. And we were having a conversation about doing this evangelism outing and I used the phrase to my mentor, I don't have time. Chad was like a big brother to me. So much like a big brother, like our offices were across from each other and we would shoot each other with Nerf guns while, while we were trying to work. 
But I said, I don't have time. And I remember him facing his desk and he turns and he looks at me and he's like, oh, you're busy. And I was like, great, I'm going to get in trouble. And he said, well, Jesus was busy too, saving the world and all. He was so busy, but he did it with people. And I'm like, man, two by four to the side of the face. And then I remembered meeting a pastor who said to me, as a young, young man in ministry, he said, evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality, Josh. Life on life. I want you to consider something with me this morning. On average, you eat 21 meals a week. Some of you eat twice that. Eat some of those meals with people that you want to disciple. Every instance of Jesus making disciples in the gospel of Luke involved him at, going to, or coming from a meal. So are you going to be so busy with all of the small things in life that you don't do the one thing that he told you to do? What about the phrase, I'm not capable? You know, after the Great Commission, Jesus himself said, Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. How is that for a promise? I mean, what if I stood before you as your pastor and I promised you that Jesus would go with you to share the gospel with somebody, that he would help you talk and, and, and make you have the words to speak? Would you feel confident knowing Jesus went with you? Well, what if I told you that Jesus is going inside of you to speak to another person about himself? Would you say, I don't have what it takes? Yes, you do. You have Jesus' spirit literally inside of you speaking for you. It's no longer about your ability. It's about your availability. Just take a chance. Open your mouth. Let the Holy Spirit use you. Stop making excuses. And then lastly, start somewhere. Start somewhere. Try one of the ideas that I have given you today. Invite somebody to church, to a discipleship class on Wednesday night. Invite somebody to read the Bible. Invite a new family from your school, your kid's school, or your neighborhood into your home for dinner. Go to lunch with somebody. Maybe you're like, well, I have trouble getting to know unbelieving people. Well then, if that's you, I would invite you to come with me and my wife to lunch. Because we seem to run into non-believers all the time when we go out into public places. And I get to know the people who serve us on a regular basis in restaurants. The people who work behind the counter in gas stations who are non-believers. I don't start out the conversation like, Hi, I'm Josh Cahill. I'm the pastor of the Well Church in Ionia. You should come and visit. No, I start out in little conversations getting to know these people and getting to know the things that they're walking to or walking through. Don't be that person that leaves an invite card to our church and then be the one that leaves a lousy tip alongside of it because I will come to your house and I will kick your shins. Don't be that person. And so in conclusion of all of the things that I have said, 
we as individuals have to get serious about making disciples. It's not going to hit the screen. Maybe it, maybe it will be, but my screen's not working there in the back. I want you to just think about, meditate on this phrase, a barren Christian is a contradiction. A barren Christian is a contradiction. A tree is known by its fruit, and fruitlessness was the thing lacking in the lives of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, which made them so wretched in the sight of God. Jesus talked about how the Pharisees and Sadducees would search the globe for people just to find one convert, but they couldn't make any disciples at home. And I always think of people who go on missions trips, but don't win people to Christ here in their own communities. What we want is for you to be a disciple maker wherever you are at. When you get labeled a church planter or you go on a missions trip, no angel comes over your head and sprinkles you with evangelistic effectiveness dust before you go. If you're not doing it here, you're not going to do it there or anywhere else. There is no transformation by aviation in the Christian life. You've got to get serious about this right here, right now. A barren Christian is a contradiction. I, I have known a lot of mature Christians. or I've known a lot of Christians who thought they were mature. And they say phrases to me like, Pastor, I, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. Well, well, great. But what people who say that to me are almost always invariably not making disciples. They're not. What else do I need to do as your pastor so that you know what to do that will make you obey the things that you already have been taught? You say you want to go deeper, I think what you mean is that you want to go wider. You want to go wider. Wider to increase the circle of influence in which you have, because deeper is an intimacy term and an obedience term. And many of us need less precepts and less Greek word studies and more obedience in this life. I mean, Charles Spurgeon was probably one of the deepest theologians of his day, and he said, I would soon bring one sinner to Jesus than to unpack all of the mysteries of God's word. Why? Because salvation is the thing that we are to live for. So do you have others that you are bringing along in the faith? Because this is how I will be evaluated as a pastor. Did I raise other people up? I'm pretty sure that my most effective ministry will likely not be my sermons, but the people that I've poured into their individual lives. Whether I discipled others is how I will be evaluated. It's how you will be evaluated too. So who can you point to in, in this church growing up in the faith because of you. General George McClellan had it all. 
except for the one thing that mattered, the ability to fight. So do you have it all, except for the one thing, disciple-making? Because most Christians will live and work beside the unbeliever every day, and they will never bring up the gospel. And from this perspective, that's a tragedy. Because we carry within us the cure to a fatal disease. The curse of sin. And we are often the ones that are not sharing it. We take the perspective that, oh, their disease is none of my business. And we do so out of 10% respect for the individual and 90% cowardice. And so where do you go from here, church? Church. 